You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. All right, so as people are arriving, we're going to... Another trivia question, does anybody remember the name of the song we open with when we do these? Thank you. This will be the third time. I'm glad somebody got it right. Thank you, Dorian. Holy ground. So let me uh, let me tell you, uh, you know the whole, like, sometimes the greatest success in the day is getting to the church? Last uh, For the last three days, last time we were here, I joked about the day that Jacqueline cut her hand with the knife with the avocado and everybody got mad at me. This is not going to make you any happier with me. Eventually, as it was just about healed, that cut actually got infected. And she went on meds recently. And over the last three days has had a slow, progressive allergic reaction to the meds. Was very sick last night. She's probably going to urgent care as we speak. While she was very sick last night, Sophia, who is not contagious, she has a very bad post-nasal drip since she's had surgery on her adenoids. She was coughing a lot last night. Sounded like a smoker. I was looking for Newports like Sophia. Something. She was coughing so much that our little soldier decided, I'm going to be up from 10.30 until 3. So Jacqueline was like... I, I went into Theo's room trying to get, and every time I went in there, he'd be perfectly quiet and go to sleep. The minute my divine holy presence left the room, Theo would start wailing again. So I got my pillow, I got my blanket, and I slept on his floor. He slept all night long. Dad move, right? Jacqueline slept in Sophia's bed because she was having some trouble falling asleep and we were concerned about her breathing. I got both of the kids here. Thank you, Jesus, for people watching our kids in the other room. Double portion, triple portion. So we're here. And so now I'm so excited after getting no sleep to talk about baggage. This is going to be fun. Hi, Ron. We have a little bit of baggage. So, good gosh. People got to stop being funny and texting me while I'm preaching. Anyway, um... Can we pray and listen to Holy Ground and then get on with everything? So I'm going to open in prayer. We're going to put on the song. I'm going to go in the back and take a four-minute nap while the song is on. And then you're all just stuck with me today. So it's me. Here we are. And I have notes that Jacqueline told me I have to share when the time comes and that she wants said, which will be great. And this will be uh, this will be fun. But keep me... Keep me on my toes. I was going to say on my toes, but I only have nine and a half of them left. <laughs> it's been a few. It's been a couple of years. So keep me on my feet. All right. Lord Jesus, we need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, let's listen to this song and get ready for today.
God, we pray that you would open up heaven for us this morning so that we would hear one thing that we can take with us to be healed, so that we can love our neighbor as ourself better when we leave here than we were able to when we came in. In your name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. 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 So feel free to get coffee and everything, and then we'll do this for a little bit, and then we'll have breakfast, and we'll, we'll have the second half after breakfast. And feel free to stop, ask questions the entire time. We don't do part one, part two anymore, like we'll talk and then questions. Let's just talk the whole time, and if we don't get to everything, we'll continue it next month. If we finish everything, we'll, we'll do something new next month. So if you have any thoughts or anything, it's, it's good if we just start raising our hands, calling out, interrupting, do whatever you need to do. Usually Jacqueline nudges me when somebody has something to say. I Please be her nudge and just start talking if there's something that you want to share, a question you want to ask, an idea that, you know, is something the Lord told you one day and it sparks something and you want to share, please just like let's have a healthy, healthy dialogue this morning. Last month, and I'm only going to do this very quickly by way of review, last month we talked about ways to identify how we're doing in a particular season of our life. So there's day-to-day moments, and then there are seasons. There are seasons where we are in growth and consolation, 
There are seasons when we're in growth and desolation, stress and consolation, stress and desolation. And we did about two hours on this, and it's important to know when anything enters your life, it enters that season, and you process it through that season. So if you're in a season of growth over consolation, it's a season of addition, growth, and pointing toward the Lord, consolation. So if you're in a season of growth over consolation, it's a good place to be. You're in a season where things can be added to your life without it breaking you apart, and you're pointed toward the Lord with the good things that are being added to your life, and you're, it's, a, it's a place of emotional and spiritual strength. If you're in a season of stress over desolation, it's a season where you need things to come off of your life because your life can't bear up under the burden, and you're pointed away from the Lord, not meaning unsaved, just simply meaning he's not my first thought in the moment. There are seasons where something happens and right away, Jesus, the gospel, the Psalms, they're right there for you. And then there's other seasons where it takes you some time to remember that you're a Christian and that we have a Savior and we've been trying to save ourselves for the last 10 minutes, 10 days, 10 years, and we, we have somebody who can do that for us. And so stress over desolation, season of subtraction pointed away from the Lord. This does not mean you're not saved. This is just seasons where you're inclined to go right to him and seasons where you probably need somebody to remind you to go to him. Growth over consolation, stress over desolation, they're the easiest ones because they're so easy to identify. A season of stress over consolation is a season where you feel emotionally, physically, spiritually weak, but you're pointed toward the Lord. You know where you're at, you know that that's happening, and you still have a sense of mission in the midst of it. And then a season of growth over desolation, possibly the most dangerous place to be, is a season where you feel physically and emotionally strong, but you're not exactly immersed in the things of Christ. But because you feel so good, you might think you are. And this is really, like, we, we, we explain this as the moment where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God, and Jesus says, hey, the Holy Spirit just showed that to you, so let's go to Jerusalem so I could die. And then Peter rebukes Jesus in front of everybody, and it's that moment where he's feeling really good, really strong, but not exactly in tune with the Lord, and is a bit overconfident and overzealous. And Jesus needs to remind him that Satan is kind of like that, and he should stop being that way. So, if you want a deep dive into this, listen to the podcast from last month. What we're going to talk about today is built on this. Because whenever an event enters our life, it first enters the immediacy of what emotional season we're in. So, if you're whatever... An event, something good, something bad, something tragic, something testing, enters your life. It enters your emotional season. And so the first way you process it is through how you're doing today. But then it passes through our past. It passes through the baggage we carry from all of our years up to this point. And so, whenever anything happens initially, an event takes place in our life, a thought, somebody looks at you the wrong way, or the right way, 
all the way to something serious, it first hits your daily place where you are emotionally, and then it hits all your baggage. And by the time you start processing what happened, it has passed through quite a history. And oftentimes, the goal for these first three months for, for Jacqueline and I is basically to help us not be surprised by the way our body reacts to things. To have things happen and know, I know where this is going, I know what this person is saying, I know the season I'm having, I know how my body's going to react to this. That is a very spirit-led place to be. I know how I'm going to respond when this happens. I had this happen to me recently. I was in a conversation. The conversation was heading to a place that takes a lot of emotional bandwidth. And I knew, I knew I'm in a really, really healthy place right now. So I can stay in this conversation a bit longer than I normally can. And it's important to know other times where it's like, I am not in the place to go down this road today. And so for my, for love of myself, and at least with me, love of the other person, I'm going to back out of this conversation right now for a minute. Those are easy ones. There's sometimes in life where you can't back out of the situation you're in. Like we couldn't just pretend we didn't have kids last night. And just let them cry and be like, whatever, they'll take care of themselves. So sometimes it's like, I'm in this. I'm in this tough moment, and I'm not, I'm not in a good, healthy place, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, at the very least, it's not about like deciding whether or not you'll handle your responsibilities. It's about knowing what, what this is going to do to me. It's easy to know where we're at emotionally. It's a little harder to know, especially as Christians, because I think we've been taught a little bit of some like wonky sort of stuff about our past. It's really a part of who we are that because Jesus loves us, he's not going to erase it. He's going to work through, he, his story is going to work through our storied past. And so everything we've been through is part of what he works through. So we tend to say things like, in my past life, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as my past life. My life today is the product of everything that I've been and everything Jesus has healed up to this moment. Right? I don't have, like, the old me is, like, a theological statement. But in, in reality, what it's saying is the old me wasn't another me. It was the me before Jesus began healing me. I am today the healed person that I was. Does that make sense? So this whole, like, there's two people, and, like, there's, like, this, like, Jericho wall built up between, like, who I am now and who I was there. Like, I miss so much of what God is doing in my life because he does it through my entire story. Nothing is wasted with Jesus. Jesus began as an embryo to tell us that every bit of our life from conception until we're with him in eternity is part of what he's working through. If Jesus started as a 30-year-old, then we could start there. But he started as a thought, an announcement. And so every bit of our life is taken up into the life of God and always still matters to him. So that's what we want to talk a little bit about today. Going to read some verses. So we're going to have three quick stories. They all involve David. First one. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. 
He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And I just want to comment on that. When we don't handle our past well, it shrinks who we are. It makes us smaller, even in our own eyes, than we really are. And when somebody pulls us from that baggage, we stand taller than we could have ever possibly imagined. Hmm. It's important to know that. Then they ran... Uh, and Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? The guy who was just hiding in his carry-on. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Next story, 1 Samuel 17. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse, his father, had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line. They were seeing Goliath. Shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And this is important. Because David handled his baggage very well. He handed it to somebody. He went and did what he had to do. And then he brought the... Uh, I thought it was Larry Johnson again. And then he, he brought the baggage and went and got it. And we, one of the things we have to talk about is when we say baggage, sometimes the good part of our past can become our baggage of today if we expect things today to go as well as they went yesterday. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And then the third and maybe the most important of the three stories. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. Notice he's not using a slingshot anymore. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. They go, they get their whole families back. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. We'll leave that for another conversation. <laughs> Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children. Get, get the children out of here. They can take the children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so my brothers, with what the Lord has given to us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. 
And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. The word of the Lord. In one story, you have somebody hiding in their baggage, not handling it well. In the next story, you have David handling his baggage very well. And in the third story, you have this combination of a mentality that says, right now, I'm too exhausted to go to war. Give me something to do because I know my limits. And other people go to war and then despise the people who stayed with the baggage. And then David says, we can only win wars in our life if the people who have the strength to go, go, and the people who don't, don't, or said a different way. We can only win the battles of our life when we know how to pick up, leave, carry, or offer to somebody else our baggage. There are times when it's ours to carry alone. There are times when we can't carry it at all. There are times when we have to follow somebody who's carrying our stuff. There's times when we have to carry our baggage and somebody else's. But there's no system to know when is which. We have to discern the spirit and we have to have a regular practice of knowing what is our baggage and where does it come from. Deliverance from the past is not an ignoring, but an invading. It's who we are. It's why Jesus' new created body retained the scars of Good Friday. Because our baggage doesn't go away in the resurrection or in salvation or in healing. God does something, we're going to talk about it, God does something interesting to our baggage. He does something interesting to our past. He doesn't make it untrue because he would make us untrue. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. He does something to it that is healing and helpful. Hi, Madeline. I think the kids have taken my father hostage in there. Yeah, sure. And my mom. It's not just my dad in there. Nobody worry. We would not be that irresponsible with the children, I promise. So there's three kinds of baggage. There are three kinds of baggage that we can talk about. And this first half is going to be a little bit rote, but there's three kinds of baggage. Number one, we're going to call it terrific. Events from the past, and this is just because I have to use the same letter for everything when I do lists most of the time. Uh, events from the past that bless and add good. Events from your immediate past or your long past that add to you, that bless and add good. But this can become baggage, especially, I think, specifically as Christians, when something went well, when a particular practice you have or a particular discipline you have goes well, we tend to universalize what went well in our life and force it into the lives of other people, assuming it always goes well with everybody. And every person is different, and every person needs a different move of the Lord in their life. There are disciplines meant for me that are not meant for any of you, because my calling and my walk is very different. And there are disciplines that are meant for you that are not meant for me for the same reasons. And so sometimes, when things go really well, and we did a particular thing, we obeyed in a particular way, we have this beautiful moment of euphoria because it went well, and then we try to replicate that for the rest of our life, and when it doesn't go well, we start to think there's something wrong with the other person, or something wrong with us. 
And all of a sudden, something good has now become something heavy to carry. And we're not sure why. And I'll say it one, one, a, a different way. There are things that God did for us when we were infants in Christ that immediately produce fruit the minute we do them. Then as we get more mature, those kiddie things don't seem to work as well as they did because God's like, okay, mow the lawn and get a job now. And, and we, we start to think something's wrong with us. I, I used to see so much when I would sit down and I would, I would spend my 10 minutes of praying and 10 minutes of listening and 10 minutes of, of reading. And now it's like he doesn't even show up. And we start to condemn ourselves. But really what we're doing is we're asking God to make us infants again. He's saying, I want you to grow. I want you to turn 18 in Christ. I want you to become 25 in Christ. I want you to be 70 in Christ. Right? He wants us to mature. And as we mature, if we don't let go of the good things that we did when we were younger in Christ and move on to more challenging endeavors with him, Paul is forever going to be saying to us, I tried feeding you meat, but you started choking. Back to milk we got. We can't let that happen. Sometimes we are condemning our own maturity by wanting to go back to a more immature time when things worked. It's Jesus saying to the disciples, go out two by two, I'm giving you authority over demons. And they come back singing and dancing. Everything you said worked. And he's like, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Then, after the transfiguration, he comes down, and his disciples are completely disillusioned. Like, we're trying to cast this demon out, and we can't. And Jesus is like, well, you have to fast for this. Like, well, we just spent three weeks casting demons out of everything. Okay, well, I gave that to you because it was the first time you were doing it. But now that you're growing up, those things don't work anymore. Hmm. I let that work because you were young and you needed a win. But now, you got to do some work beforehand. Now you guys actually have to think... I might encounter something today. Have I prepared myself for what I might encounter? Right? They're not failing. They're realizing they need to grow. And that's why Jesus says, how long am I to bear with you? Like, grow up. Please. Paul, I'm in the anguish of childbirth with you again until Christ be formed in you. It's like this sense of like, stop reaching back to these things that worked so well when you were younger. You're growing up now. They don't work the way they did, but there's better things out there for you. There's deeper things, deeper rivers, deeper storms, more sea monsters, but a lot more glory to experience as well. That's terrific baggage. The next kind of baggage is traumatic. These are events from the past that actually have done damage to us. Things that have actually happened. Things that people have said. Uh, events that have physically happened to us. And they damage. And I will say this, sometimes we walk with these limps for the rest of our life. Sometimes healing isn't necessarily repair, it's God giving us a grace to live with the limp that this damage has caused. And then, there's testing baggage. These are events from the past that are difficult, but they reveal and they refine. So there is, there's good things that happened in the past that can become baggage if we try to replicate them. There's traumatic events from the past. And then there are events that are testing events. They're not necessarily terrific, but they're not necessarily traumatic. Uh, because you all have walked through this with me, pun intended on walk. 
well, what's going on with my foot, I would put this as a testing event for me. It, was, it wasn't traumatic. Other people have gone through far worse. It was testing. It tested my stamina. It lasted three years and in some, way, some ways is still going. It tested our family. It tested our resolve. It tested my controlling behavior because I had to let go of so many things I would have been doing. On and on. It was a testing event. But it was also interacting with things from my past that were traumatic. Which I won't say all of them. But there's a lot going on when these testing events hit us because it's hitting me now and it's also moving through. For one, you know, my, one of the things that I've always struggled with since I was really little is a little separation anxiety. Like the fear of losing the people who are the closest to me. And when you're faced with you know, surgery and injuries, you really quickly realize how you're basically like flesh, blood, and water, and that can be spilled at any moment. And all of a sudden, you're faced with, like, your own mortality, and the Bible is saying, well, give us a heart of wisdom by teaching us to number our days. And I'm like, I don't want to number my days anymore, though. I am going to live forever, and I'm going to be perfectly healthy the entire time, starting now. And it puts you, you have to process through your fears from a long time ago. What does it mean to not be what I want to be for my kids if this injury continues to develop in a negative direction? I have to face this stuff. You can't ignore it. You have to think through it. What does it mean when the doctor's like, you know, I, I hope Theo loves to swim because you're probably not going to be playing basketball with him. Okay, well, you could say that. There's that one part of you that wants to say, my God is greater than that report. Take it. But you also have to say, Maybe he's telling me something in advance so I can prepare myself now for other ways of connecting with him and things of that, of, of that regard. And so without opening up, you guys aren't my spiritual director. I love you all. But you have to know what you have behind you. You have to know. Uh, me and a few people always say, by the t when it came to when we were in the singles ministry, we would always say, when you're later in life and you are dating... You're not looking for somebody who has no baggage. When you were 18, 19 and dating, maybe you could find somebody that doesn't have, maybe just a little carry-on, a little makeup case of baggage. If you're dating later in life, you're not looking for somebody with no baggage. You're looking for somebody who knows how to fold their baggage well. You're looking for somebody who, when they open their suitcase, it doesn't look like you're coming home from vacation. It looks like you're going to vacation. Right? When we're coming home, I'm like, kids, lay on this suitcase with dad, and if we can press it down. We went to Florida in 2020. I, I, got, I had the privilege of doing my cousin's wedding, and we got, we got to Florida. I packed so much more meticulously than Jacqueline. Like, I am that guy. I have so, and so it's like, I'm going to Florida. The weather's going to be different. I have a dinner to go to, a wedding to do, casual time, pool time. I'm throwing everything in my bag. Like, I, you have to prepare. i got to have different shoes for different occasions and blah, blah, blah. We were, it was like one in the morning and we're waiting for our bags to come out. And this one bag kept going around that was now in a clear plastic bag. Oh. And me and Jacqueline were like, oh, it sucks for that person. All their stuff is out. And like, after a little while, we're like, it's ours. It just burst out everywhere. Right? You're look, if you're dating later in life, you're looking for somebody whose baggage is not that. Like, you don't want somebody whose baggage becomes a, like a TSA threat. 
you want somebody where it's nice when they open it. It's like, oh, there's the shirts and there's the boxers and like they know what's going on in there. We're never going to get through this. That's funny though. All right. So what is our awareness of our baggage? What is our awareness of our baggage? One, our, sometimes our baggage is known. We're fully aware of past processing the now. There are times where you're fully aware that your past is processing your now. It's a good place to be scary, uncomfortable, weakening sometimes, but a good place to be. And these are pretty simple. The other awareness is unknown. You're not aware of your past processing the now. You don't think about your past. You, you've pretended because you've been saved, it's gone. And it's constantly there, and you're not aware that so much of what you're going through now is the proper response based on what you've been through. And then there's opening. Our, we're beginning to open to the reality. We're becoming aware that our past is processing our now. So sometimes we know, sometimes we have no idea, and sometimes it's slowly opening to us. And the very last thing we're going to say before we leave, way, like hours upon hours from now, <coughs> is that opening phase comes with, and Stephanie and I were actually just recently talking about this. When Jesus heals somebody who had a demon, before that person walks away whole, they seem to get worse for a moment. The boy uh, that we talked about on Wednesday night, after Jesus released him from the demon, laid on the floor and everyone thought he was dead. He was less alive than he was before Jesus even took the demon out. Because there's times where we get used to living with our toxicities and the minute the toxins start to come out, we actually get worse because we're not used to walking in health. We're not used to feeling everything. We're not used to things actually making us feel. And so if you're in an opening stage, you might feel like this is not helpful. I assure you, it's like throwing up. It is disgusting, but it is making you better because it's getting rid of the things that need to be gotten rid of. But we'll talk about that in a moment. Any thoughts or questions at this point? I don't want to... This is... I've been thinking about this for a long time, so it feels simple, but any thoughts, questions, <coughs> ideas? Anybody want to open up their personal business about their baggage? <laughs> Dad, what? <laughs> that was like the worst time to raise your hand. I don't want to. La, 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 la. What, what were you going to say? What I was going to say, <laughs> regarding traumatic baggage, could that be something like having been in a serious auto accident. Oh, yeah. Or it doesn't necessarily have to have been a, an experience with another person or people. Thank you for giving me a chance to launch into this. Listen, no one is ever allowed to tell you, and I, and I know Ron will agree with me because we've talked about this a lot, no one is ever allowed to tell you that what you went through shouldn't have been traumatic. Like... No one's allowed to define this. Your, your, your body and your life and the way God made you is very different than mine. And so there might be people who have this insane tolerance for all different kinds of pain. Getting sick, 
having cancer, having a car accident, whatever it could be, that it never turns into trauma for them. And then their boss gives them a look. And they fall apart because of something that happened a very long time ago with their father. No one's allowed to say, look, you made it through cancer. That shouldn't have been traumatic. No one's ever allowed to do that. When anything happens, it could be terrific, it could be traumatic, or it could be testing because of who you are. I've probably shared this story, but Brother Randy, my spiritual director, was telling me recently he was eating lunch with all the other monks, and he said he said they were getting very rowdy. And I'm like, <laughs> two things. Number one, can you record that next time on your phone? I know it's against the rules, but what does a whole bunch of monks in a monastery... And, I, and then I'm like, Brother Andy, I also have a feeling like, you guys don't know what rowdy is. Can you come to my house at dinner time? Right? Like, there's rowdy, and then there's... You guys were, like, talking above a five, maybe, or something. And, uh... I bust his chops, and he just looks at me like, I'm going to send your soul in two minutes if you don't stop. And he said, all of a sudden, you know, he, his, his palms were sweating, and before he realized it, he had his hands on the bottom of the table like he was going to flip it. And I'm like, brother, right? Like, he's the most gentle human being ever. And then I'm like, but Jesus flipped table, should I leave? Right? It was like, and he said, you know, he went to his spiritual director, and all of a sudden, a memory got unlocked of a time when he and his brothers were eating dinner somewhere around the holidays, and his dad had had a really bad day, and they were being a little loud, and his dad flipped the table. And he had completely forgotten about it. Totally forgot about it. And in that moment, as a fully grown adult, 30, 35 years later, the noise level was rising, and something in his body was like, this is dangerous. Somebody might hurt us if it doesn't quiet down in here. So number one, he, doesn't, he realized, first of all, I don't have a temper problem. Something's not wrong with me. Something was done to me. And now my eight-year-old self is saying, it's time to talk about what happened. You're feeling this now as a 50-some-odd-year-old adult because now you're ready to hear what that kid wanted to tell you when dad flipped the table a long time ago. So he didn't know it was opening to him. So yes, to answer your question, yes, anything can be traumatic. And things that are traumatic for me might be testing and refinement for you or even terrific, right? My, my, my toe issue could be testing for me. It could be traumatic for somebody else. For somebody who's been through a whole bunch of other stuff, it could be a walk in the park. So no one's allowed to tell you. You have to, and you shouldn't think you're deficient because something was traumatic or something wasn't and maybe you think it should have been. Just God made your body. We've been, we've been taught to not trust our flesh. Jesus said it himself. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is In other words, he wants our flesh to be stronger, not weaker. He wants us paying more attention to it. He doesn't want us ignoring it or condemning it. He wants it to grow up into the measure of our spirit with us. So our bodies, they, they're telling us things. And our body, honestly, our body has more patience than our own mouth does. Our body waits to say, that happened to you when you were 18, Bill. But I can't talk to you about it yet. Because you're not ready to hear what really happened that day. All of a sudden, I'm 40 and I'm like, why am I weeping watching the great British baking show all of a sudden? Why am I crying? And it's like... Because your 18-year-old your self is like, time to talk. 
and a sight of cake reminds you of being at a friend's party where this thing happened, and you're like, oh, no, it's not the show. It's not the show. It's something else. And Jacqueline's like, what happened to you? It's the great British baking show. Why are you getting emotional? It's like, no, you know what happened was my 18-year-old self was like, time to talk. Out of nowhere. So you can't condemn yourself. When it's time, it's time. And your body is unbelievably intelligent because God made it. It works way better than we think it does. And sometimes we don't realize how good it actually works. And we start condemning what God is revealing without realizing it. Just a, a thought, at least from, from my perspective, on the like, difference between trauma and testing is uh, a tendency to want to just, whatever might be identified as trauma, get it over into the testing bucket and tell myself, like, no, no, this didn't really hurt me. This is just something that I can grow from. Yes. And basically skip the part where, like, you know, a certain sense of God is like, no, this, this was actually really bad. Yes. This has left an imprint on my life, uh, and, and that's something that I need to sit with God about, as opposed to, I like, just immediately turn it into, like, nope, this helped me grow, and I'm, I'm you know, on my way, and Jesus is with me, and everything you got it. is great. Um, and sometimes we can turn, we can turn a testing event into a traumatic event by not giving it its due diligence. Like, this morning, I realized quickly, I'm not leaving the house until Jacqueline is set and okay, I'm getting the kids ready, I'm giving them breakfast, and I'm going to get to the church two minutes before the service that I'm doing starts. And everything in me growing up was like, you get to the church three and a half hours before your earliest volunteer. And these guys can tell you, when they get here at 5, sometimes I'm here at 4.30. Right? That's how I was taught. But there's a point where it's like, we're, we're in a moment, and my family is going to outlast me being a pastor here. And I'm not going to sacrifice this moment and make it traumatic so that I could do this, like, cliche thing of a good leader gets there before his or her team. Like, that's true, but you have to know when to pivot away from that. This was a moment of testing this morning. And if I would have bounced on Jacqueline and left the kids home with her while she's dealing with what she's dealing with, it could have gone from testing to the beginning of traumatic. So there's times where you just have to say, all my expectations, all my plans... Frank, what was that quote? What was planned should never be... Oh, I said it. I said it. It was so good. I said it. Because you remember things I say more than I do to my shame most of the time. I said something along the lines of what was planned should never dominate what's actually happening. Or something along those lines. Yeah, I said something really dope. We'll remember it. It was so good we forgot. Check my notes. Yeah. But like, it was just, do I smell fire? Oh, they were doing the sternos. I was like, so nervous about the building. I'm like, that's it. Um, so, yeah, Diane. Yeah, I just wanted to add to what you were saying as far as trauma. It's uh, cumulative. It's not necessarily one event. Yes. And so what we need to do is to be aware of that emotion when it's really strong like that, that God is possibly put his hands on something from the past. Yes. Because it's all connected. Ooh. And if we would drill down into that moment with the Holy Spirit, Love it. it allows us to even go to that memory that may be blocked or we can't access because we put it so far behind us. But it's important because we're reacting to it now. So strong emotions, since emotions come you know, from God, 
You got it. Wonderfully said. Drill down with the Holy Spirit. Like we said before, healing is not moving away from something. It's not avoiding. It's invading. It's going into those places and hearing what the Holy Spirit is saying about them. And, you ready? It's hearing the rest of the story. Like, when you experience especially trauma, you only remember a part of it. When you get to go back, you remember other things about it. And, you know, like when, I, when I'm going through some of the traumatic things that happened to me, Brother Randy's asking me questions like, what color was the wall painted? Like, what? Do you know what we're talking about? But what he's doing is he's trying to get me back there. Because we, don't, we, we didn't consciously experience everything our body experienced, good or bad. You don't, so much of our memory unfolds over time. It's why Jesus left the church with the, the number one gift he left the church with was do this in. Like the number one way that he gave us the sacrament that houses everything else is a sacrament of remembering. Remember, yeah. Sure. Well, so many, so many good, like, excellent, excellent, excellent. So, number one, there's a, one of my favorite, I always say this, I love the Bible. One of my favorite, of my favorite, of my, like, the Bible's like, all the verses are like my best friends, and I'm like, this is my super best friend. Um, is, when Jesus comes back, it says, we will know as we have been known. Right? So we will see as we've been seen. So we don't have a category for this, right? So what it says is, in imperfection, I won't know by getting to know. Like, I know this is a cup with a top because I've learned that. That kind of knowing is filled out by a new kind of knowing where I know as I've been known by God. We don't have a category for that. So when we, are, when we are wrestling with what we know to be factually true and what our emotions are telling us, we automatically are prone to think they're in opposite directions. But so much of what God is doing in our life that seems contradictory is really a slow harmonizing process. So when something happens to us, our emotional center picks up on some of the memories. Our cognitive brain picks up on some of the memories. 
our actual physical body picks up on other parts of the memories. I mean, there's, there's people I've talked to that, you know, whenever a particular anniversary rolls around, like they're, they'll get headaches or their back will hurt. Like their body, our body stores the events in all of the, all of what makes an event an event is stored in different parts of our, our spirit, our soul, our brain, our, our memories, our emotions. And then when they all start to tell the story, sometimes your emotions is telling you this one part of the story. Your brain is telling you another part of what happened that night. Well, this part wasn't so bad. This part was terrible. And you're like, I'm crazy. The story's being filled out slowly. It's all, when we, when we put it all on the table, you'll start to see the fullness of what you know because actually what's happening is we're learning to know as God knows us. And he knows a story way more than the facts we think we have or, and the emotions we have. He knows in categories beyond those. So that's a little bit mystical. So with that said, this ha- when that stop stuff starts to come out, it has to happen with somebody else. It has to happen with somebody that is super safe to you, that you trust, that can guide you. Uh, Bishop, Bishop Q, my bishop in Kansas, said to me on the phone yesterday, he said, I'm moving away from terminology of counseling to the terminology of direction. My job is to direct the unfolding of people's stories with them and go down the river with them and just keep it directed as God is unfolding things. And so we need somebody to help direct all this stuff coming out. It's, it's too much for us to handle. Even the slightly bad ones, when they start to come out, are a lot. When the really dark stuff starts to get unlocked and healed, we need, we need people. We need people that we trust. Yes. Thank you. That was really helpful. What do you do when your past or your childhood or your baggage is full of insecurity at that time and fears? And you go through things that a child should not go through. When that stuff, when, when all right, so what, what Lena just said is, what do, what do you do when this stuff that shouldn't have happened to you is starting to come out? I'm telling you right now, you can think whatever you want about what I'm about to say. Every single person in this room should be seeing a therapist on a regular basis. Not lying. Everybody needs to see a therapist. Okay? Not just a spiritual director, a therapist. Right? Pastors, our job is kind of, we're, we're basically the weatherman. It's raining, it's going to rain today. Right? Like, we need, we, we have been, and not all of us, you know, now that Salem is starting to become truly convergent, there's people from more orthodox backgrounds who have a healthy view of this kind of thing. But some of us have been taught that, like, head shrinkers aren't good and blah, blah, blah. Like, no. (laughs) Saying I'm not going to go to a therapist when I've been through something traumatic is like me saying, yes, I know I have osteomyelitis in my toe, and I know my little toe is now bigger than my foot, but my God can heal it. I'm not going to the doctor. Like, totally inappropriate and bizarre to do that. Right? We all need to see. We need to see professionals. We need somebody who gave their life over to this work. Everything I'm spewing out here is coming from a laundry list of podcasts that I listen to from clinicians and professionals 
And all I'm doing is jotting down the stuff that I can understand, all to say, we need to see and talk to these people. Amen. We have to. We have to. Like, God, no one says, well, you know, I'm going to go get surgery, but make sure the doctor's Christian who's doing surgery on my foot. But when it comes to therapy, we have, like, all these, like, all these things between us and a professional. Well, they got to be this, and they got to be that, and it might be... I don't care if the guy, if the guy cutting my toe off is Muslim or gay or Roman Catholic or a fundamentalist Christian. Won't tell you which one I disagree with the most out of that group. <laughs> if he's good at that, I'm happy he's doing it. The last thing they said to me before I went under anesthesia was, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And the guy's like, well, I go to the Unitarian Church. Everything's okay, right? And I was like, eh. And then I woke up like, <laughs> I'm like, no, you know me, I'm like, well, actually, gay. I'm like, how do you, you can't ask me that right now. It's Jacqueline's dream to ask me something like that just before I can't talk. <laughs> this dude's Unitarian. I couldn't disagree with him more, and he's my anesthesiologist. He's going to keep my heart beating and my lungs moving himself. While I'm under, right? Like, and then, but when it comes to our brain and our emotions, we have like all these categories that we don't give to anything else. We go to the gym. We don't ask, well, what's the faith of the people who own Planet Fitness? They got a treadmill, and it's ten dollars a month. I'm going. So I think we need to see professionals. We need to have spiritual director. We need to have a relationship with our pastor and. His or her spouse. We need to, we, we can't just sit there in our prayer closet and deal with this stuff. God didn't make us to do that well. We have to be in relationship with people. We have to be. It is becoming factually true that the more people run from professional therapy, the harder it is for them to relate to themselves, their children, their past. And everything starts to become distant and disjointed. It's important to sit with people. You don't... Well, first of all, everybody should buy stock in therapy now that I'm saying this, I'm sure. But start small. But if you have real serious stuff going on, you, you have to meet with somebody. And listen, your pastor's here to help you eat the meat and spit out the bones. I don't have the expertise that they have. But... As they begin to give you strategies and talk to you about things, you can come and say, hey, without getting into all the details, my therapist said these things that I thought were so helpful and so good, but she said these things, what do you think? And we can, I can help spiritually direct you through your personal and private walk with somebody else. Like, this, there's a team of people here for everybody, right? And so the first thing Brother Randy told me was, I'm assuming halfway through this, I'm going to know that you need therapy. And I'm like, oh, wow, you're really good at what you do, obviously. And he said, and the thing is, I'm not your therapist. I'm here only to make sure that you're relating to God well in everything you're going through. When you see a therapist, I'm going to help you walk through that. There's just things that we need a professional to do. I can't give myself foot surgery, and I can't work out some of the things that need to be worked out in me. We have to normalize this. Mm -hmm. I was talking to um, one of my in-law siblings, and they were saying, in, in our younger generation, therapy is normalized. 
Like, no one's weird, weirded out to say that they go. I was like, I'm really encouraged to hear that that's happening. That's a good thing. So we have to maybe catch up. It's the best answer I have. Can, all I can do here is make us aware that we might need therapy. <laughs> so. Thank you, Pastor. You're, wel you're welcome. <laughs> all right, let me, let me move through a couple of these real quick, and then we'll break for <laughs> breakfast. All right, what purchased the baggage? Uh, one, our personal decisions. Some of the baggage in our life, the good, the traumatic, the testing, are because of decisions we've made. Right? So, you know, the car accident you were in is traumatic, and it was because you were doing 98 while drinking, right? So, like, this kind of thing. So, personal decisions. Others, choice. I don't know if I wrote that grammatically correct, but whatever. Somebody else's decision acting on you. And then, maybe most powerfully, our environment. And the reason why environment, I think, holds a really strong punch here is because our environment, how we grew up, where we grew up, the town we grew up in, the house we grew up in, the ethnicity we grew up in, everything about how we grew up has given us gifts and given us bricks to carry. But also, every choice we've made and every choice somebody has made on us has happened in an environment that's already giving us baggage. So when I went to speak um, at this, this council in White Plains that Josanne uh, gracefully gave me an opportunity to speak at where we were talking about social justice, the gospel, and mass incarceration, one of, I was sitting with uh, a gentleman who had been involved in this field for like 50 years, and I was just like, I said, you know, you, like, you'll forget more than I'll ever learn. I said, if, if I could have 30 seconds of your time, what would you tell me? And he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. He said, all of my years summed up in this. When, tr when trauma happens, the victim needs to heal, the victimizer needs to heal, and the community that the trauma happened in needs to heal. As simple as that is, I never thought of the third one. The land remembers. Why do we go to Gettysburg and feel weird when we step on quote-unquote hallowed ground? Or we go to an area where there were mass graves that nobody knew about and now we know and it feels different, right? Or we walk into a church and it feels different because... When events happen, the land keeps it. Hmm. And we know. When I, when, I go, when I drive back to Peekskill, and I drive by the house I grew up in, I feel things that I didn't feel when I passed all the other 800 houses to get there. Because things happen there, and it, and it, has a, it holds some of my memories. And so, the person who got hurt has to heal. The person who hurt the person who got hurt has to heal. And the land has to heal. That's why we erupt and there's riots and marches and all these things because the land is also crying. Roman, like Romans tells us creation is groaning to be healed along with us. The spirit's groaning in us and so are the trees and so are the birds and so is the soil that holds the drops of blood that should not have been shed, right? And so our environment contributed to our baggage. The choices of other people contributed to it. Our choices contributed to it. So, what does Jesus do with the baggage claim? Can we get there real fast? 
What does Jesus do at the baggage claim? Jacqueline said, she always does this. She's like, I don't have anything to say. And I'm like, well, if you could say one thing right now, if we were in front of the people, what would you say? And she goes, well, we need to offer God our baggage the way that you offer him the bread and the cup on Sunday morning. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, when you offer up the bread, we trust that God immediately gives it back to us, but gives it back to us healed. And she said, we need to offer him our baggage, knowing he's going to hand it back to us, not take it from us. He's going to give it back to us, but now it will have been touched by him. I'm like, you have nothing to say. That's the best thing that's going to be said the entire time. She said, and we don't need to go to the verse, but she said, like, the man who had the one talent and hid it in, hid it in the ground, he knew that when you invest things in the master's life, it yields a result. But he buried it in the ground because he was afraid to do something with it. And she said, sometimes we bury our baggage. And what happens is all we have left is our version of the baggage. But if we would have given it to him, it would have come back to us, but it would be bearing a fruit that it isn't bearing. She said, I, I want people to know to give their baggage to the Lord like the boy gave the loaves and the fish. And I was like, you can stop. This is amazing. We get it. When we give Jesus things, he gives it right back, but it's been touched by him. And it's very different. And so we need to get to the place. And so I'm hoping that the second half after we eat, I'm just going to go through a few things that Jesus does to our baggage. And I want us all, I want you to hear it. I want you to listen to what I'm going to say in the second half, the way you listen to the worship team when they're singing. Receive a portion that's for you. Because we have poured ourselves in prayer over these couple of things that we're going to share in the second half. What does Jesus do when Jesus takes the baggage? What does he do? And what is it like when he gives it back? We're going to go through that a little bit. So we're going to, we're going to break. Uh, can, Paul, can you see if they're ready? Yeah. So, Ian, what does Jesus do at the baggage claim? You ready? I'm going to answer your question right now. The first way I can explain this is he does to our past what Easter did to Good Friday. So, Easter doesn't erase Good Friday. It doesn't make it untrue. It converts the meaning and the use of it. So, Mary on Good Friday is like, Everything I ever hoped for, gone. Mary on the Monday after Easter Sunday, she's now like had breakfast with Jesus. She's not healed the way that we would think from the sword that pierced her soul on Good Friday. Like that event is still, it will forever be an ache of all ache. You can't unsee your son being tortured, crying out for help and like be okay. But it's, it's, it's now God is not just converting Mary, but he's converting how she remembers and what that event meant. He's, she, he's converting the actual trauma. 
He's not taking it away. He's not making it any less traumatic, but he's converting what it does to you. Which is why his hands, when he says to Thomas, essentially, on Easter Sunday, he says to Thomas, look at my trauma. On Friday, that trauma said, I'm dead. On Sunday, that trauma said, there's hope. They're all still deeply affected by what they saw on Friday. You can't see human suffering and be okay after that. Right? But it's the use of its converting. So I think on this side of eternity, like I said earlier, we won't be... (laughs) cured the way that we want to be cured where like it doesn't hurt anymore or it doesn't but we will be sanctified in a way where our baggage won't have a claim on us we'll have a claim on it and we're going to go through every bit of that in the second half but like we're look when we think of healing we have like a category for healing like i had a migraine and now i don't anymore But there's another healing that comes that says, like, the migraine is still there, but God gave me, like, this ability to get through the day with it. It's kind of like that on this side of eternity. Like, in the new heavens and new earth, every tear will be wiped away. Here, our tears are no longer, like, the tears of, like, tragic loss, but they're the tears of watering the trauma so that it begins to grow something new. Does that make sense? It's disappointing to some extent. Okay. Ten minutes? Okay, great. Get to talk a little more here. So he, he does... And so everybody who bought Chris Green's book, who cares about Jesus, you're going to hear in one of his sermons, one of his sermons that you're going to read, Chris says this phrase, Jesus, we can't see Easter Sunday as Jesus having survived his death. He didn't survive his death. He died. And when he died, and this, I I read it and I wrote down, people are going to ask questions about this on the margin. When he died, he wasn't doing anything when he died. He was dead. So what's the immediate question? Somebody give it to me. He went down and he preached the gospel, right? I'm not good enough to say this. But I'm going to try. This is like me trying to like repaint a Picasso here with like a stick figure. When we say that God was dead and was only dead and wasn't doing anything but being dead, he, 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 fully, he fully went into what it means to be totally dead. And one way of saying that is that he preached the gospel in hates. But when we hear he preached the gospel, we see him like alive, like, you know, Rod Parsi, like killing it down there in Hades and like the organ. But the reality is God being fully dead is his sermon to Hades. It is his descent to the dead. He got even lower than the people who were dead and gone. That is the sermon of God. That is him preaching the gospel there, being completely and totally dead. He didn't survive his death. Easter Sunday converted his death into something that robs death of its power. We can't say these things simply because we will get it wrong the minute we say it simply. So we have to say it more and more complicatedly to get deeper into what it is that Jesus was actually doing. He was converting death by being more dead than any of us or any of our loved ones will ever be. He was so dead that even the dead can talk to him on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
His death was so dead. What's that Wizard of Oz song? Yeah. She's not only nearly dead, she's really most sincerely dead. Man, that summer we listened to show tunes has I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that. Right? But like he was all the way dead. So much so that those who are dead move. Have life. Peter, James, and John are seeing Jesus talk to the saints on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're hearing the conversation. How is this possible? Because of what he did in the grave. So he didn't survive his death. Like, and he, he, he died so that we can enter fully into even the most traumatic event of all, which is death. And still have that be converted to something that is life. Uh, Fulton J. Sheen, who you're going to hear me quote tomorrow, he said, on Easter Sunday, the tomb became Mary's womb again and gave birth to Jesus a second time. Like, you have to come up with things like that to begin to say what this actually was. Right? You can't just say, well, you know, he, he died, but his, his body was in the tomb, but his spirit, like, that's, we get that. It's deeper and so much more profound, and if you've been in the bowels of trauma, you need it to be. You need it to be really deep and really profound and almost unexplainable because when you're reaching back to the worst trauma, you can't explain it, and you need a God who's even more complicated and deeper than that. We need a part of God we can't explain because I can't even explain myself. So he doesn't survive his death. He dies his death. And Easter converts that. But Jesus didn't survive. Like, like Chris will, and I'm spoiling for you, but it's good when you hear it the third or fourth time. Chris will say that God didn't keep Jesus from dying. He delivered him from death. And so his promise to us is not that he will keep us from dying. It's that he will deliver us from death. We will live the life Jesus lived. We will die. And we will be delivered from death. It is. He was dead. Yeah, but I guess like spiritually, I I just imagine that like when we die, our spirit doesn't die. Well, but right, so like ours won't because he was fully dead. We will never be fully dead because he really was. Like death no longer has a sting, right? Like. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Or the other way around, whichever way they say it. It's, we will never face what Jesus faced. We will never be as dead as he was. Okay, yeah. I, I see that. So then, you're saying that it, they said that he preached down in Hades. It's just that his death was that certain. Like yeah, yes, that's, that's great. That's an excellent way to put it. That, that phrase is witnessing to that his death, specifically his, like the son of God's death, was such a pure death that it itself was a harrowing of hates, a sermon that can never be preached by any other tongue. His death was the sermon of all sermons that set the captive free. I have another question. Keep it coming. These guys haven't put the eggs out yet, so let's keep going. Um, do you think when Jesus died that Satan 
ever thought that he won? Like in the time, do you think he thought? Like Carmen said in the champion. <laughs> like I wonder if he thought that, like, oh, it worked out for me. I don't think personally, and again, I don't, I don't have all the verses to back this up at the moment. I don't think personally, evil ever could think that it won. I think it only wants us to think it did. I think Satan's awareness that he's only ever done anything but lose is he wants us to think, Satan wants us to think that he thinks he won. He knows he's lost. He doesn't ever want us to know what he knows. Right? Evil only deceives and tricks. It never tells the truth directly. It always, it always tells the truth, but it always shades the truth. Right? So, yes, I don't think Satan for one split second has ever thought he won, but I think he's super happy when we think he thinks he won. I love you. I will sit with you all for breakfast. Thank you, Jesus, for this food. Thank you for these guys who cooked it for us just now. In the name of Jesus, amen. Everybody go fight tooth and nail for food. All right, everyone. I want to I wanna jump back in. E, Luke 22. I want to jump back in. I know, like, we got food and all that kind of stuff in front of us, but, like, I, I couldn't do this part first because it needed to have that discussion behind it, but I, uh, I really want to talk through what Jesus does to touch our baggage and to heal us in those areas. So I'm going to read this text real fast, and then uh, we will continue. So Jesus is sitting with Peter, and if you notice, I'm purposely using Peter's story quite a bit in... Uh, <coughs> I'm, I'm using Peter's story quite a bit uh, in these uh, Saturday mornings because... My man's story covers just about every base that you could possibly cover pastorally. So, Peter just said to Jesus, I'm going to be amazing and I'm going to be more amazing than everybody else. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Now, this is key. What has Jesus already named him? He's already named him Peter. But in this moment, what does he call him? He always... He never ignores our past baggage. Do you see this? There are times where he's Simon. There are times where he's Peter. There are times where the Bible calls him Simon Peter. Your name shall no longer be Jacob. It shall be... And then he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and... You see, he never will walk us away from our previous, what we would call our previous self. So once he says, I'm going to call you Israel, when we, when we say, you know, there's the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and right under that is the line, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's like he won't, he wants us to know that in everything, our past is included in what he's doing. So Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
keep in mind now, Jesus knows what the failure is going to be. What's Peter going to do wrong? Somebody tell me. He's going to deny him. But what is Jesus concerned with? The denials or something else? Jesus is concerned with his faith. You see what we do? We read the story like him denying is the failure. But Jesus says, here's my concern, that when you do the thing that you think is a failure, that your faith doesn't fail. He operates on levels very different than we're accustomed to operating on. We operate under the law without even trying. Right or wrong. Jesus is concerned. I'm not concerned that you deny me three times. I'm concerned that when trauma hits your life, it doesn't hurt your faith. Like, that's a parent move. Right? Like, as a kid growing up, I thought I knew what the important things are in my life were. I'm happy my parents were playing the long game, not the short game. Right? Jesus is playing the long game. And when you have turned, this is how confident Jesus is in his prayers. I'm praying for you. And when you have turned, again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Okay, I'm using this story. Ian, can you jump back to the three causes of baggage? Uh, what purchased the baggage real quick? I'm using the story of Peter's denials to show how Jesus converts our baggage because his story involves all three. It's his personal choice. It's the devil acting on him. Remember what Jesus just said, Satan has demanded to have you tonight. So it's Peter's choice. It's evil happening to Peter, and it's also the product of his environment. If his environment wasn't so extreme religiously or politically, he might not have needed to deny Jesus. Right? If the Romans and the scribes and Pharisees weren't so polarized, it wouldn't matter if he said, yeah, I know him, I follow him. But because of the environment and his choices and the choices of evil acting on him, his story of denials covers all the kinds of trauma that we could have. So I want us to use Peter's denials as a placeholder for all the baggage that we have. Okay, It covers all the bases. Otherwise, we'd be here forever if I had to go through each individual person. right? So Peter's denials cover all the different kinds of baggage that we have. And so here's universally speaking how Jesus interacts with that baggage. And I just, man, this is going to feel underwhelming to me because I, Jacqueline and I have like physically prayed together that these eight things, each of you would, would hear one. Would hear one. And so I want you, if it's possible, to open the suitcase as best you can, in your life. Whatever you know of your baggage, open it and hear, hear what the creator of the universe and the savior of the universe he created has to say and what he does. One, value is never lost. 
What does he say to Peter? He says, Satan demanded to have you that he might do what? Sift you like wheat. What's an interesting analogy that Jesus is using? Because when you sift wheat, you're trying to shake out everything that is bad and only leave the good. What Jesus is saying is, Satan wants to sift you, Peter, so that when you deny me, you think there's no wheat at all. Everything has just been sifted out, and there's nothing good in you. And Jesus is saying, when this is over, hardly anything will have fallen through the sift. You are valuable. There's a ton of wheat in you. Your trauma that you're about to face does not take away the value that you have. That is, I need everybody to know that. Your trauma, whether it's your choice, the choice of somebody else, or your environment, does not devalue you. When Satan tries to shake you, and bang you back and forth and talk to you about your trauma and the decisions you made and how people treat you like garbage and whatever it is, hardly anything comes out. He's just shaking around really good wheat. And Jesus wants you to know that. He wants you to know that. He can shake you, but it's wheat that he's shaking, not tares. Mission. Mission is never lost. When you return, you won't just be healed. Your life is not defined by just getting healed from trauma. You're going to strengthen your brothers. Jacqueline and I have sat with so many people, and from 2017 when we started sitting with people until now... There's one thing that's been going away slowly in all the conversations, and that is whoever we're sitting with, the conversation about Jesus is getting less and less and less in people's issues that they're having. Our marriage is falling apart. I'm not happy. I don't like my job. On and on. We're having trouble parenting. The finances, the inflation. We're scared. I'm sick. Cancer. Whatever it is. We've listened and... The stock that is going down is the presence of Christian mission in what is going wrong. It all is starting to sound like people are thinking that Christian mission begins when things stop going wrong. I will get back into my flow with the Lord as soon as this is healed. That Jesus lets Peter go. Because Jesus is with him the whole way, and the strengthening that Peter is going to execute for the church to this day is what he is learning as he's going through his trauma. And so the conversation about Jesus has to come back when we're working through our issues in life. Mission is never lost. Whatever Jesus assumes, he heals. And he put on humanity. And he went through a history. Because he's healing an entire history. 
That's why there's a genealogy before there's anything else in the New Covenant text. He's healing an entire history, not just securing a future, but he's healing a history. And so mission is never lost. Value is never lost. You're not more valuable once you heal and less valuable before you do. You are always valuable. His work is to keep dusting that value off to remind you of it. Don't hate your flesh. Don't hate your body. Don't hate your decisions. And trust them to Jesus. Value is never lost. Mission is never lost. Emptiness is not loss. On Easter Sunday, Peter runs into the tomb and sees nothing. Emptiness. And in that emptiness, he experiences a presence that he never felt when he was standing with Jesus himself. Everybody who went into the tomb on Easter Sunday left with a sense of holy presence in absence. So even in the emptiness that trauma causes, trauma that is because of decisions you've made, other people have made, or your environment has wrought into you, it creates an emptiness. We, as Christians, know we can look into it. And we won't see anything, but that doesn't mean that we won't experience a presence in the emptiness that lets us know something that we can't explain has taken place. There are, and you've heard me say this and I'll say it in a few weeks, there are no stories of Jesus coming out of the tomb, like Lazarus did. There's only stories of us going into it. He's inviting us into our lonely emptiness to see that presence has now invaded that space. And you've heard me say this before, but there are times where you've experienced Jesus as an other, like I'm experiencing Anthony right now. It's me and Anthony. But then there's a way that in trauma, Jesus brings you so close to himself that you are in him, and now you feel like you're the only one in the room. But it's not because he left, it's because you're so close to him, you don't see him the way you used to, like, other than, you're in him. So you feel alone, but it's because of a proximity of an otherworldly supernatural sort. So, value is never lost, mission is never lost, and emptiness is not lost. Go to it. Go to it. Something has happened to it. And he's there. In a way that is different than you expect. Peace is never lost. Jesus literally says, Jesus literally says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Now think about Think about how Peter might feel when he hears that. Now, when we preach it, it's like, go tell the disciples and Peter. And we have this positive spin on it. Like, I want Peter to know that I love him that much. But if you're Peter in the moment, what are you thinking? Wait, he, wait did he definitely say my name? Like, he said Peter. 
He didn't say, like, Jeter. You sure he wasn't calling for Derek? No? He actually said Peter. Like, And Peter's, uh, why is he asking for me specifically? That moment, he's, he's processing that moment through his baggage. He looked at me when the rooster crowed. Now he's asking for me. Maybe he snuck in behind, like, Matthew. Like, I don't want to see him. And then Jesus shows up through a wall, and he's like, guy, he does that. And what is the first word out of Jesus' mouth? Peace be with you. And peace, theologically, is not calming of emotions. It's relational harmony. Peace and righteousness are like almost similar words. Jesus is saying, before we do anything, we're good. Imagine what that feels like for Peter. He just gave me peace. He just told me, with everybody, he didn't single me out yet. He just told me that we're good, and he gave me his Holy Spirit. Before we address anything. Peace, relational harmony, is never lost. Your body might tell you that you have to get a little farther along in your healing for your walk with the Lord to not be hindered. The only thing that is hindered is your view of the fact that it's hindered. It's not hindered. Peace be with you is what he is. He, he doesn't change. So whatever Jesus says, he always says. And he's always been saying and he always will be saying, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Value is never lost. Mission is never lost. Emptiness is not lost. Peace is never lost. Jacqueline wanted me to point out that Rich Viotis, in his book, Good, Beautiful, and Kind, talks about how hindering wounds become holy wounds on Easter Sunday. Hindering wounds. His wounds on Friday make me flee. i got to get out of here, otherwise they're going to do this to me. Listen to this. On Friday, the church said, we got to go, otherwise they're going to do this to us. Do you know what they said every single day after Easter Sunday? We're going to stand right here, and they're going to do this to us. And we don't care. It's St. Polycarp saying, you can kill me today, but you can't hurt me. It's the Roman soldiers when they they nailed... um, when they killed Maximus the Confessor, one of them said, why, are, why do we smell baked bread? All of a sudden. Their death, they, they didn't say on Friday, let's run, they might do this to us. And they didn't say on Easter Sunday or, or all the days after, hey, now we can stay because they won't do anything to us. They said, now we can stay even if they do the same thing to us. Because hindering wounds have now become holy wounds. And that's when St. Justin the Martyr coins the phrase, it's the blood of the martyrs that becomes the seed of the church. So it's like, when I get saved, when I get healed, it's not that I never have to go back there. It's that I can now go walk through the garden of my trauma. Because there's streams in the desert. (laughs) Right? Peace is never lost. Ah. The past is not lost. One of the most peculiar, powerful verses in your New Testament is Peter saying, let's go fishing. 
you could line up for God so loved the world that he came, right? But let's go fishing. Is Peter saying, I'm ready to go back to where all my trauma started. I'm going to go back. I'm going to get back in that boat again. Last time I was in that boat, I was saying, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Then I was sinking in the water. Then we got to the other side, and I told them that I would never deny him. And he's like, let's go back. I'm ready to go back and visit it now. And he goes fishing. And guess what he catches that night? Nothing. But you know, when you read it in Luke at the beginning, it says they labored and toiled all night. But in John, it just says they caught nothing. It doesn't say they labored or toiled. Because now having to produce doesn't enslave them anymore. They're saved by something greater than their own production. They caught nothing, but it wasn't labor or toil. Why? Because peace has been spoken to them. They are not how good they do the next day. I, like, if I was going to get a tattoo, it would be, let's go fishing. <laughs> I believe it's like Luke 5, I think, is the first time that they catch nothing. He says, Master, we labored and toiled all night and we caught nothing. And then in John 20 or 21, I think it's John 21, it says that they caught nothing, but it doesn't speak of labor and toil. But it's the same fishing time, or is it two different instances? Two different instances. Oh, okay, yeah. Right. This is three years later now. Oh, okay, they're fishing, and they still are terrible fishermen. <laughs> the past is not lost you part of peter's story is that he said at this point now peter knows that jesus is alive and he has received the holy spirit and he goes back to his day job he goes back to the job he didn't like he goes back to the job where he probably spent most of his time thinking of how much of a sinful man he was because that's the first response. In Luke 5, when he meets Jesus and there's fish in the, in the net, he's like, right away, he's like, I'm a terrible person. That's, that didn't, he didn't just start thinking that. That's what he was thinking about while he was fishing. And now he goes back. And it's just like, I'll go. And then it says, two of the other disciples, maybe James and John said, we'll go with you. He was going to go back by himself. He didn't ask them to come. You can face it. Once you've offered it to him and he offers the baggage back, you can face it. You can go back there. You don't need your life. You don't need the first world side of your life to improve, to have a better life. You can go back to the job that you don't like and think new thoughts when you go back there. Can you imagine? <laughs> I had that experience in 2014. I had that experience in 2014. I was standing... Oh my God. I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> I was standing in service, and I had just gotten back from uh, uh, Chuck Walker's funeral, and Stuart Walker had spoken about it, and I decided, all right, I gotta, I gotta go get a big boy job now. I have to stop playing around. And 
I'm married and I'm like, all right, I gotta, I gotta get a career. I can't just sit around and wait to become a pastor. And I was standing, I was standing there and my eyes were closed and Randall Worley was here. And I didn't really know him like that at this point. He's become one of my very best friends. And, uh, I was praying just like this. And in my head, I go, Lord, I just don't value, I don't value how smart I am to go and, and get like a real job. I'm going to, I'm going to mess it up. Just had this inner monologue that was just, you're going to, you're going to screw it up. That's what you're going to do. You're going to, you're going to go get this job, a real job, a job with like a career path. And you're going to show your wife and your mother and father-in-law that you just couldn't handle it. And that you should have been in the daycare center, not working at it the whole time. Right. <laughs> and I opened my eyes and scary Randall is like standing right here. Jesus. Like, okay. And he puts his hands on my shoulders and he said, the Lord just told me that whatever it is you just thought about, about being afraid, you don't have to be afraid. What? And in that moment, I said, I'm not going to define my life by the job that I get or getting my dream job. I'm going to be a pastor wherever I go. I might have a job where I get to be one directly. I might have to be a covert pastor for the rest of my life. But I'm going to go to work. I'm going to, you ready? I'm going to not like my job, but I'm going to like work. That was the line that clicked in my spirit. You don't have to like your job, but you can love going to work. Working, getting up, going out, and being productive is what God gave us before the fall. <coughs> Toil and stress came after. But working is what we did before we fell, and it's what we will be doing in heaven. We will be working. It just won't have the weight and the pain and the thorns and thistles that it does now. But in that moment, I made that decision. I'm going to face all the things that make me feel like I'm going to mess this up. And every once in a while, I mean, you all know, COVID comes and that feeling comes right back. Okay, you, you were doing good with the church in 2019, but now a global pandemic, watch this thing fall apart. And you just have to face it. You just have to stare there and say, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go fishing again. And I might catch nothing, but eventually he's going to say, cast your net to the other side, and there's going to be something there. And there was. And then sewage backups and floods and losing toes and burst pipes. All these things just keep happening while we're young parents and we're doing all that. And it's like every time, pull that net up, there's fish in it again. It's like you can face down these fears. You don't have to rebuke them. Jesus is revealing stuff to you about him in your fears. Before you get rid of it or act like you can, I'm just, I'm not, I'm going to claim that I don't have fears. Go ahead and claim it all you want. You do. He's talking to you through them. It's why he says fear not all the time. He wouldn't say fear not if the fear could just go away. He's speaking to you through it and teaching you things about yourself. I've learned that there's a way in which I could not be afraid of failure in a way that boosts me into like a sort of arrogant controlling place or there's a way that we could learn to be really confident and know that we're going to be okay from a real humble place bold and confident but a humble place and so we develop i've developed sentences for myself like there's always grace for the next thing so you hear about like something going on like covid or the whole basement is a total loss or whatever it is. And you're like, okay, a lot of stuff for the next few months. But always do the next thing. 
And then when you finish that, always do the next thing. And these are ways that I've learned to get some of my humanity back mm-hmm. and face things that I was like, I just, it's like, it's like the kid in the field, right, Frank? I just hope they don't hit the ball to me. I'll be good out here. Just don't hit the ball to me. <laughs> and now we're not over here saying, oh, I hope they hit the ball to me. I got this. It's like, I'm ready for what happens next. Ready to root my teammates on if they make a good play. Ready to help them if they don't. Ready to do my best to make a play. And know they're going to be there if I, if I boot the ball when it comes my way. Right? Like, this is what's happening. And I, I want it to happen in your lives. You have to go back fishing. You have to go there. You have to go there. And he's there waiting for you. And it is very freeing when you realize, I can experience the thing that I would have said. See, Randall, this is what I was talking about. It's happened to me 12 times. And none of them were nearly as bad as I thought they were going to be. It was just, okay, do the next thing. This, this was like kind of my nightmare. Yeah, it turns out it's just like any other thing. Dust yourself off and go to the next thing. Like the way that you project what your biggest fear is going to be and then the way you experience it when it happens, they are not the same. Because Jesus was waiting for you there. When you were projecting it, he wasn't anywhere to be found. But when you really face it, he's there. He's there. I could go on forever about that. So value is never lost. Mission is never lost. Emptiness is not lost. Peace is never lost. The past is not lost. And here, failure is not a loss. When Peter walks on water in the Sea of Galilee, what happens? He sinks, right? When he sees Jesus in the, when he hears that Jesus is on the seashore, what does he do to get to Jesus? He dives right back into one of his most embarrassing moments ever. The disciples totally dry and him soaking wet for thinking I can walk on the water. First minute he hears Jesus, and I paused on this and I thought, again, we don't know what his baggage was telling him. Why did he jump in the water? Maybe he jumped in the water because he said, you know what? I need to prove myself to Jesus. I'm going to get there before the boat. Because his baggage was telling him he had to do that. Maybe he was saying, I need to be baptized. And I'm going to jump right back into where he... Last time I was down there, he pulled me up. And I could use to be pulled up again. So I'm going to jump back in there again. Who knows why he jumped in the water? doesn't tell us. All we know is that he went right back to one of his worst moments and swam through it and got to Jesus. You can go back there. You can swim through it. You might have to swim through it to realize it doesn't have you the way you think it has you. You can swim through it. Our baptism, remembering our baptism on a regular basis. You know, it's not wrong. We need to have one of those little fonts with the water in it so when we walk into the building we can remember our baptism. Because our baptism is the moment that we swam through what we never thought we could swim through because Jesus was swimming with us. This is good. Providence is never lost. The disciples, Peter leaves the boat And swims to Jesus. The disciples all have to haul the net ashore because one of the worst decisions we make... Well, I'm not going to go there. Preaching tangent stopped. They all carried the net 
because for a little while we need other people to carry our baggage for us. The net full of fish is one of those things that is good from the past. Like we talked about good baggage, but a net full of fish is the first time that Peter said, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Now the net is full of fish again. Peter escapes. He jumps out of the boat and leaves. Maybe because he's like, last time I told Jesus to get out of the boat, this time I'm just going to get out of the boat like Jonah. Maybe he was like, I got to get out of the boat. I'm sinful. Throw me over like Jonah. Who knows? We're left to play with it. We're left to mess around with the possibilities. But all we do know is this. All the disciples carried the net for Peter to shore. But then something amazing happens. Peter goes to the fire and he sees that, and you've heard me say this, Jesus already has fish on it. So what Jesus just told Peter was, I want you to try your best. And if you catch nothing, there's still fish cooking for you. If you bring nothing to me, just get to me. Because I already have what you couldn't catch. What does Peter do when he sees that? He runs to the boat and carries the net by himself. Eleven, ten guys haul it ashore. And then they leave and they're like, I'm tired. You're tired. We're all tired. Let's just go sit down. Peter, when he realizes, even if I catch nothing, Jesus is going to provide for me, he runs and pulls the net across the sand by himself. When we let other people carry our baggage for us for a moment so that we can have an encounter with Jesus, this is why we need to go to people and tell them we need other people to carry our baggage with us and for us, it gives us an energy to now grab all of our baggage and pull it ourselves too. And why? What's the energy? Because even if I have nothing to offer him, he's already got fish for me. I'm not working to establish my place in Christ's life. I'm fed whether I do what I'm supposed to do or not. New mercies every morning. We almost treat it like there's new mercies every morning if we get it right, but then we wouldn't need to have new mercies every morning. So he's saying you're going to fail every night. Like we, we, we say it like we want it. There's new mercies every morning, but you know what else we're confessing? I'm going to fail every night. Yay! Providence is never lost. And then, the most important of all of them. And, like we were just talking about, our brain knows this, our emotions don't. Love is never lost. And something happens here. Now, I've talked to a few people about this. Everyone has their different take on it. It's one of those things where I just like mine, so I'm going to say <laughs> Some people say this doesn't matter. Other people say it matters a lot. When Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? He uses the word, two words for love the same, and then one word for love differently. He says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter, do you agape me? Peter, do you phileo me? And he says, Peter, do you love me with the highest love possible? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me with the highest love possible? Yes, you know that I love you. And then Jesus leans in and says, Peter, do you love me with like, like an acquaintance kind of love? And Peter starts to weep. He's like, you know I don't love you the best that I possibly can. I just lied twice. <laughs> but how amazing is it that you were able to verbalize the kind of love I do have for you and meet me there and be okay with it? 
Peter, do you love me a 10? Yes. Do you really love me a 10? Yes. Peter, come here. Do you love me a 4? And it says, grieved that he said to him this time, do you phileo me? He says, yes, Lord. You know that I got that you. Something happened when he realized, Jesus, like, Peter, I will get down to whatever it is that you have and be okay with it right now. And it sparks agape in Peter. And he weeps because healing causes the grind to come out. It doesn't say moved with compassion, Peter. It says Peter grieved. It hurts. His love is a consuming fire. But also a sweet... Both. At the exact same time. He doesn't scold you for the choices you've made that brought trauma. He just reminds you that he loves you by reminding you that you still love him, whether you know it or not. And this is how, as Jacqueline puts it, he offers our baggage back to us like he offers the bread and the cup back to us. It's now part of his presence. Our baggage is now part of his body because we're part of his body, and all of our trauma is now assumed by him, and he's now gone through what you've gone through with you. That's, it's now, he's offering us the bread back as his body, and he's offering you your trauma back as his. He owns it with you. Doesn't erase Good Friday, he converts it. Doesn't erase your trauma, or the abuse that happened to you, he converts the way that it works in your life. Doesn't take. I think 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who go through any afflictions. He converts the use of our afflictions. He doesn't cause them. He converts the use of them so that we can strengthen our brothers and sisters with it. Through it. He Don't say, he put me through this trauma so that I. That's not what he did. He entered it with you and changed it so that you can. He didn't need to put you through it so that he could accomplish an end. He's better than that. You went through it and he went through it with you. Yes, that leaves a lot of questions. But he didn't cause it. He went through it with you in such a way that what the devil meant for evil, he uses for the good. It doesn't say what the devil meant for evil. He erases. He takes it. Puts it back on the wheel. Reforms it. And the pottery has all these cracks in it. <coughs> taken care of by the master potter. And it's what makes it... It's what makes it amazing. One of the ways that you know a real painting from a fake one is that the real ones have flaws. That you cannot possibly have done on purpose. That's how you know they're authentic. So let's pray. Let's close our eyes for a moment. You can remain seated. And really, everybody close your eyes. So we have a little bit of a quick private moment here. No altar calls, just... If after hearing this, you said, there's some, there's some stuff that I need to offer to the Lord, just quickly put your hand up for a second. Father God, you see the many, many hands lifted in this room. 
And we just pray, Heavenly Father, like the way that we take that broken bread and we offer it to you. And we ask for you to descend on it and we ask for you to make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus. We pray that we would offer you this baggage from our past, this baggage from the way that we grew up, the things that were done to us, the stuff we did, even the baggage that we know we've caused in other people's lives. The baggage that I've purchased for other people and put in their backpack that they didn't ask for. Just offer it to you. We offer it to you. And we pray that you would give it back to us. Changed so that it doesn't take from us, but it somehow begins to give life back. As we remember you with new memories of those moments. Able to go back there. And I pray, God, that we wouldn't rush to go back there. That we would go back there as you lead. As you direct, as you prompt and nudge. And I pray that we would do that with each other, that we wouldn't go on that journey alone. Even when Peter wanted to go fishing by himself, two disciples said, we have to go with you. You can't go back there by yourself. And Peter needed to hear John say, that's Jesus, because sometimes our baggage is so loud we can't decipher his call. And so I thank you that we have a family here that is not just a fun church on Sunday family, but a grinded out in life family here at San Juan Tabernacle. And I pray that we would help each other do this, that we would haul the net ashore with each other and labor and toil until it's not labor and toil with each other and offer our baggage to you together so that we would not feel like our past is something we have to get over or something that is wasted, but something that you are inhabiting. It's part of that genealogy at the beginning of the, of the gospel. It's every single thing that we've ever been through. We are Simon Peter. We're not just Simon, thank God. And we're not just Peter. We are Simon Peter. And so we thank you for this. We pray that this would not just bless us, but that this, our healing would bless our children. That it would renew our youth. And that we would feel lighter, even with the same baggage. You know, you're the one who says, take up my yoke. And when you say it, we can do it. And so we thank you for these things. We pray that your anointing would be here tomorrow as we discuss tomorrow how we don't have to keep reinventing ourselves but we can just let you your, let your glory fall on exactly who we are today and that's what you're pleased with and so we pray these things in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit in your name amen amen, amen. thank you all so much if you have any questions i'll hang here for the time. thanks for listening to the salem tabernacle podcast for more information about us including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.